Uh, Colonel Alan P. Ned Julian was an honorary award life member of the Civil War Roundtable. He last appeared before our group on May 4, 1956, on the Atlanta Campaign. Mr. Julian is director of the Atlanta Historical Society. He is founder of the Atlanta Civil War Roundtable and one of the great experts on Margaret Mitchell and Margaret Mitchell's collection of Gone with the Wind fame. Question before the House this evening, gentlemen, is if you were chairman of President Jefferson Davis's employee, the Physical Handicap Committee, would you have selected John B. Hood to command the Confederate Army of Tennessee? And may I present Colonel Ned Julian to give us the answer. Thank you, Mr. Lerner. Appreciate it. It's uh, awfully nice to be back in Chicago where I see so many friends and familiar faces. But having been asked several times, I can only credit it to the tolerance of Chicago people. Uh, I must say, though, that I feel a little heartened after a very discouraging day by finding myself stand to next to another honest man, a Taft Republican. <laughs> No politics. <laughs> Must have been Lloyd Miller. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, I hope you don't get too badly shortchanged tonight. You know, for uh, you, uh, I've known of you pretty, some of you pretty well for a long time. I have had a little witticism for the last few years, except it wasn't so damn funny to me, and it's getting less funny every day. But when certain things have happened, and I said, well, I just, just have to charge it off to menopause. <laughs> well, uh, of course, that'll pain the medical people here, I'm sure. They know it in their hearts, but they won't admit it. But um, today I must, uh, I must confess that it really overtook me. I uh, left home this morning with the talk I was to give today. I was going to refresh my mind about it in the airplane coming in and go over it a little bit. But when I got uh, aboard the airplane, I find that the talk is somewhere in the Atlanta airport, I hope not in the trash can. <laughs> so I am uh, in the most unhappy state of um, talking on something I've never talked about and entirely from the top of my head. So um, I'm sorry, if you want your money back, just see the management. <laughs> John B. Hood to my mind, he was a very tragic character. He was tragic for two or three reasons, um, the greatest of which, I think, was because at long last he was elevated to a position that was beyond his capacity to hold. However, there's a lot of background to him, and I'm hoping I can remember enough of the outline things to tell you about it. John Hood was a Kentucky boy, born over at Owenville, uh, which is some 50 miles east of Lexington. I think in June of uh, 1831, his father was a physician, and I understand a very good one for those days. Um, good, sound family stock on both sides. Um, no, uh, no, um, no, no, uh, Nothing to reflect on either side of the family that I've ever found. Very healthy environment in which he grew up. 
And he got a, even though his father wanted him to study medicine, he uh, got an appointment to the military academy because he was an adventurous soul. And of course, the army life uh, in those days, of course, it's become doggone adventurous again. But um, it was really the adventurous life of the day. He went up to the military academy, big, likable, extroverted fellow, uh, who today would play football and be on the glee club and all this sort of thing, and uh, depending what school he attended. But um, he had a hard time getting through. And it's a one of those things that probably could only happen in the United States of America, that two people that he later faced in war, two classmates, one of which graduated number one in his class of 1853, that was uh, James Birdseye McPherson, the other who graduated number seven, which was John M. Schofield. Uh, he roamed with McPherson a couple of years, and he and the three of them were very close. And uh, due to his um, extracurricular activities of various sorts, and his uh, just general good-natured um, uh, hellaciousness, the only reason they got him through the military academy was they sat on him and crammed him until he graduated pretty well up in his class. He was number uh, 44 in a class of 52. But you can't, uh, you can't credit that so much to John B. Hood, except he had the receptability. He just wasn't interested. You have to credit that to McPherson and Schofield, whom he later faced at Atlanta. Hood uh, was assigned um, first in the infantry and was stationed in California. Oddly enough, and very interesting to me to note that for a while he was in the same regiment in Northern California, uh, the one which General Grant left under something of a cloud, not nearly the cloud that various writers have uh, written up in the past have, uh, I think, had Grant uh, fought his case a little bit. Uh, he wouldn't have uh, had to resign or do anything else. But that's beside the point. It was interesting that Hood knew Grant there and served in that regiment. Uh, small army in those days, of course, a lot of ground to cover. Hood, um, in 1855, March 3rd, 1855, some new regiments were uh, uh, authorized for the army, among them the 2nd Cavalry. And for reasons which nobody has ever uh, given a very good reason, uh, never a foundation for, he was assigned to that regiment. It was a very hand-picked regiment. Um, such people as Albert Sidney Johnson, Robert E. Lee, George Thomas, Hardy, and the, and the, and the troop commanders, or company commanders, as they called them in those days, uh, they were all, all first-class people. And uh, even getting down in the grade of lieutenants, they were pretty well selected. And nobody quite understands, since no, none of these people knew Hood particularly, just out of the academy, out to California. Nevertheless, he was appointed a second lieutenant, the second cavalry. And I bring that out because it had quite a bearing on his life later. It exposed him to people who were top structure people and, and middle and lower structure people in the Confederate States Army and in the Union Army. Uh, his um, career there was quite eventful, but it marked something which was to characterize him later on. Uh, they were stationed in Texas, and of course Texas in the 1850s was a pretty rough place. Uh, of course, if you listen to Texans, it's a rough place today. But, um, but um, 
no serious person listens, listens to Texans, of course. But um, his first independent command, he took about 20 or 25 dragoon or, uh, cavalry troopers on a scouting mission to locate a certain bands of Indians which were operating near the Mexican border, running cattle back and forth and so on, and uh, or cattle one way and loot the other. But um, he set the pattern for his future activities by doing a very rash thing. Now, why his troopers followed him, whether they believed in him, whether they were as brainless as he was at the time, uh, or whether they just discipline was such that they had no choice in the matter, it's hard to say. Um, that was a day before the um, American soldier became a citizen and a voter, so uh, discipline was a little stronger than it is today. Uh, he attacked this much more powerful band of Indians, lost some five men, managed to get out of the scrape, but as I say, it sort of set the pattern. There was Hood's personality and pattern. He, as long as there was a fight, he wanted in the thing, no matter what the odds and whether or not it would do the slightest bit of good for any reason. Now, attacking this band of Indians did nobody the slightest good, except uh, did a lot of harm. He lost five men, went through great hardships, but he enjoyed it very thoroughly. Hood um, became a first lieutenant in the course of time, but then when the war came on, well, as a matter of fact, before the war came on, he was ordered up to the military academy at West Point uh, as, a tact, as a tactical officer. But he uh, took leave, went to Washington, and asked to be excused from that duty, asked to be assigned elsewhere, which was almost unheard of, because everybody in the Army, practically, wanted a detail at West Point. There were a lot of reasons for it. It was a good, comfortable life with no revelies, except the days you had duty to receive the reveille report of the Corps of Cadets, and uh, certainly no hardships. But everybody wanted it but Hood. He didn't. Not him. He wanted it with a regiment. And then, too, as he told General Scott that uh, the political situation was such that there might be uh, a breakup, and he wanted to be free since he was a Kentuckian and he didn't know how Kentucky might go. He wanted to be a little freer to make up his mind what he would do. And General Scott apparently respected his point of view, so he relieved him, at least had his orders uh, revoked and assigned him uh, to a regiment again. In April of 61, of course, the die was cast, and Hood did resigned from the United States Army and entered the service of the Confederacy. At that time, the capital, of course, was in Montgomery, um, Alabama, and um, he proceeded there, offered his services, and uh, he was a little irked about this since he was the first lieutenant in the regular army, a cavalry regiment, a fine cavalry regiment, that he was only commissioned the first lieutenant of the Confederate Army. When other people that he considered uh, well, were, were his juniors were getting higher rank, his uh, contemporaries and juniors, getting higher rank. But he swallowed it, said nothing about it, was ordered to Virginia, uh, got to Richmond, reported to General Lee there, and was assigned uh, to duty in, the, in Magruder's command, setting up coast defenses and whatnot. Went down there, did a very fine job of work under Magruder. Magruder, without any authority in the world, made him a captain, and later promoted him to major, apparently with no authority whatsoever. And apparently, from all we can gather, the only 
bonafide promotion he had from first lieutenant was to the grade of lieutenant colonel. About that time, I might say that when he was at Montgomery and he was filling out his application and it came to make a state, by that time he decided that Kentucky was not going into the Confederacy, so he had fallen in love with Texas apparently, so he put himself down as a Texan. All right, the Texas regiments were beginning to string into Virginia, the 1st, 4th, and 5th Texas, which made up uh, with the inclusion, and I like to say stiffened by the inclusion of the 18th Georgia. Uh, um, the 4th Texas, uh, for some reasons they had some little trouble with their, the man who had been elected their colonel, so uh, Hood became the colonel of the 4th Texas, and he immediately made a very fine regiment of it. Of course, they beefed and growled and yelled a high heaven about his West Pint methods, but pretty soon he had a proud outfit because uh, discipline makes proud and dependable men. I have never seen a slack organization in the Army in all the years I served where there was any pride, never. And the same things in a business organization. Let the thing go slack, no pride. Uh, with, as a result, in the spring of 1861, he was made a brigadier general and given the brigade. As a brigadier general, as a brigade commander, he showed outstanding leadership qualities. He was big, colorful, afraid of nothing on God's green earth, and uh, he led those people literally as well as in a, in a uh, command sense. I mean, physically, he led at times, which... Uh, it's not the best thing, all of this. Of course, in those days, people thought a little differently. But, uh, but, uh, Eltham's Landing, uh, Gaines Mill, these early battles of the thing, he, by his example, showed these people that uh, they could come through a battle with some degree of success and not necessarily be killed. The degree, the, 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 uh, I am told, reading old counts and things, that the percentage of skulkers in the 4th Texas was very low, and in Texas, Brandon, the whole Texas brigade was very low. Hood, as a division, then in October, became a major general, got the division, and again, as a division commander, he showed excellent leadership ability. Administratively, uh, of course, the accounts are very sketchy. We get it from various sources. But the uh, accounts are pretty sketchy, but administratively, apparently, he was not one of the best. Leadership sense, yes, but after all, battle is only one incident, occasional incident. Of course, in those days, it was more occasional than it is ordinarily. But um, uh, divisions have to be run. It takes a lot of business administration, takes a lot of military administration to run a division, but he was pretty careless about that sort of thing. He was only eager to give battle whenever he could give battle. And no one in those grades, a brigadier general and major general I know of, no one in either army who could do it any better. His color, his leadership, his uh, commanding voice, and his obvious fearlessness in the face of danger inspired men. And even after he had the misfortunes in later life, the men of his old Texas brigade were loyal to him to his death, and uh, after his death, of course, saw that his children were provided for. Hood went up to Gettysburg 
in that summer of 1863, and of course we're not going to fight the Battle of Gettysburg, but I think he went up under Longstreet, who was maligned for something I don't think Longstreet, it was Longstreet's fault, but then that's beside the point. But Hood had the misfortune there to be wounded. Uh, he lost the use to all intents and purposes of his left, lay, uh, left arm. I um, read one account, uh, it was a soldier's account, but it seemed uh, reasonably sound, that he could put his reins in his left fingers, left hand, and hold them. But that's about the most use he got out of that left arm, and even that was after he'd had it in the sling for a long time. That, however, didn't seem to change him materially. He still was the colorful, uh, cheerful, uh, flawlessly honorable, extroverted soul he'd always been. Uh, no uh, mental genius, of course, but with that magnificent leadership qualities. When Longstreet's Corps, at least two divisions of it, were sent west to Chickamauga in September of 1863, Hood's division went along. Hood um, was not supposed to go, really, because he was still in a convalescent status, still had the arm on the sling, but uh, his men uh, put up such a pother about the fact that he was going that he did get authority and go anyway. It turned out to be a turning point in his career. When those two divisions got to Chickamauga, and uh, got in there on the night of the first day with Longstreet, of course, with them. And when in the middle of that night Bragg divided his army and put Longstreet in command of the left wing, Hood, being the senior of the division commanders on that wing, or I mean of the two division commanders which comprised Longstreet's corps, the other corps was back in Virginia, he took command of Longstreet's corps. Now the thing was pretty much cut and dried. The plan was made by Longstreet. They advanced across the Lafayette Road and uh, towards this high ground uh, where, the, where the Federal Army was uh, very well in place, trenched. Uh, and they weren't making such awfully good progress until, a, as you're all familiar with this order of the Rosecrans, which accidentally opened a gap right squarely in front of Longstreet's corps with Hood leading it. Now Longstreet obviously saw this thing first and ordered Hood to exploit it, and he couldn't have ordered a better man to do it. Hood immediately charged into that thing, and I don't mean saying that such and such will go there. He charged in with the van of this, of this attack, broke through the thing, scattered the Union right. Of course, other troops were participating too, but the actual exploitation, the spearhead of this thing with Longstreet's corps with Hood leading it, Hood, for the day, was a corps commander. Of course, they got across the, drive, the other road back there and uh, were driving towards the what was left of the Union line in behind there, and he was shot from his horse. Uh, this time, it was, some, it was a wound that was going to change his whole personality, his whole point of view, and his whole code of ethics. He was uh, a mini-ball, which, of course, as you know, are soft, shattered his his right femur about, and the thing had to be taken off. I think he had about four inches left from the socket when they got through. Dr. T.G. Richardson of New Orleans uh, did the operation, uh, a well-known man, uh, later president of the, it wasn't called the American Medical Association at that time, but the National Medical Association. 
and um, he performed the operation. But Hood had had his day of glory. I think up to that time, he had probably hoped the day might come when he'd lead a corps, but I don't think he thought, I, I don't know, I have no reason to believe that he thought that he'd ever get any higher than that. There was no particular reason. Maybe back in his mind, he might have dreamed that out in the West something would open because he'd be in the last man in the world to want anything to happen to General Lee, whom he, whom he uh, was devoted, to whom he was devoted. But that day of glory leading that corps and the adulation that followed the losing of this leg, he'd always been a popular man, and uh, for a Kentucky boy, he'd done very well socially in Richmond as long as he was serving in the Army in Northern Virginia, become quite popular. He was quite the Richmond beau. Uh, learned his way around socially very well and uh, 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 flirted and dated and got pretty serious apparently with one young lady. But um, after this operation was done, at some point back of the battle line at Chickamauga, which people have searched for many years but never found out quite why, there's no reason anybody needs to know, but it's one of those things that uh, many people like us try to pinpoint if we can. It's just uh, Pete, is, uh, Pete understands this, certainly. Uh, more time is wasted trying to pin down unessentials and is spent on useful things, but then it's fun. Um, don't know how far, exactly where it was taken off, but he was taken to a beautiful little valley four miles east of Lafayette called Restamurchy Valley. He was taken there because one of the, one of the colonels, the colonel of the 11th Georgia uh, in Longstreet's Corps, lived there, Colonel Frank Little. His father, William Little, is one of the earliest settlers in there, even before the Cherokees were excluded. He was carried back there, and it was roughly, as I estimate, it must have been a good 20 miles. How they took him back, I don't know, presumably in an ambulance. And if they did, God help him on those roads and those springless ambulances of that day. But um, as one uh, physician in Atlanta told me, they probably kept him loaded up with laudanum through the day. That, uh, after he was coming out of it, it wasn't so pleasant, but at least he made the journey in relative comfort. But they put him up in the William Little House, and there he stayed for almost a month. And during that month, he must have been tortured a great deal about his fate. I think the pain in his leg was nothing to the pain, uh, the uh, psychological uh, pain he was, he, uh, he was uh, experiencing. Because here he was, the gay, bold, the dashing, now reduced to a life of being a cripple on crutches. And he was a big man physically, which made it the worst of anything. Uh, finally, there was a rumor, though of course uh, it was an utterly impossible thing to have happened, that Bragg, General Bragg got a rumor that uh, there was a Union cavalry raid planned down south of, uh, of the Lafayette area to come up through the Subligna area and uh, capture Hood, so he was evacuated to Atlanta. I might um, digress there slightly to show how that was done. Uh, even though he'd been recuperating for about three weeks, that leg was not in any sense uh, conditioned to make an ambulance ride to Tunnel Hill where they had to put him aboard the train, a happy event. Somebody had the, the, the thought, and it worked out splendidly. They, from the Littles and the Youngs and the Suttles and other families there in the valley, they got four very strong slaves, good, sound, strong uh, men, 
uh, most of them uh, whose descendants live there today, Youngs and Settles and Littles, and they're very substantial, uh, prosperous farming people, I might say. But they took a litter. And in relays, these 12 men, carrying him in relays, carried him the 17 miles to Tunnel Hill on this litter. Four-minute carry him a while, four-minute carry him, four-minute carry him. So they got him there rather painlessly. That's just a side thing, but it's a, a good field expediency that worked. Probably that 17 miles was the only easy part of his journey because I understand it took about 72 hours to get him by train then to Atlanta, which must have been a torturous thing. Must have been, because the WNA Railroad was overloaded, the roadbed was in bad shape, and it was bumping and pulling and bumping and pulling, and he, that leg, must have been pretty angry, that stump, by the time they got to Atlanta. But he was there a while. When he left, we had no record whatsoever, and he went on to Richmond, where the president received him very graciously. The president had liked him, apparently, thought of him as a fine soldier, and um, he was sort of taken into the official family. Of course, he was taken back and lionized socially, but things weren't the same. Instead of dancing, he now sat. And uh, where, when the girls were nice to him, I think that inside he had a feeling it was only because they were sorry for him, not as he probably fancied before that they all adored him and so on. But uh, I won't say lusted after him because nobody did that in those days. But... Um, <laughs> But um, Hood must have gone through while he was lying in the William Little home in the Western Mercy Valley, and uh, all this painful trip and the trip back to Richmond and then to be back there in that condition, no longer the gay gallant, you know, he must have gone through a species of hell that the wound never subjected him to. <coughs> Primarily because losing, never being able to be the man he was again but also because that one day of being a corps commander probably ruined him. He was one of the finest division commanders that ever walked. But from then on, I don't think he ever thought of himself anymore as anything but a corps commander. And I think the fact that he thought, that for the time being, he thought for the first uh, some weeks that his career was ended. Just at the time he had gotten his foot in one of the higher rungs of the ladder, fate had uh, jerked the ladder out. As a matter of fact, it hadn't. Um, he became um, quite a friend of the president's, Mr. Davis. Um, rode with him in his carriage and uh, talked to him a great deal, apparently, about the conduct of the war. Um, and I would say with all... Uh, all uh, uh, respect to General Hood. I don't think he had a very good grasp on anything but battlefield fighting. Um, uh, certainly he knew nothing of strategy. Certainly he knew nothing of the political implications of the coming year, and they were very important. Um, finally, the president became so sold on the fact that Hood, crippled or not, would make a splendid corps commander that he in the winter, about the 1st of February, he, yes, on the 1st of February, he was commissioned a lieutenant general to date from the day of his exploit at Chickamauga, September 20th, 1863. Now, they did something with him that was not a completely happy thing. The army out in the Central West, the Army of Tennessee, had some good corps commander material. 
Pat Cleburne, uh, A.P. Stewart, perhaps one or two others, possibly Ben Cheatham, I don't know, it's, he's quite a controversial figure. Some people say he hit the bottle too much, but in those days that didn't seem to make too much difference. In fact, it helped a little. But, um, in fact, it would help a little now, but it isn't permitted. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but um, Mr. Davis decided that he would organize another corps, uh, well, reorganize the Army, and give Hood the corps temporarily commanded by John C. Breckinridge. Well, that had a very unhappy effect on the Army of Tennessee, and Hood was received rather coolly, not by the commanding general out there, General Joseph E. Johnson, who had assumed command uh, just before the turn of the year there, and on the 27th of December. Johnson welcomed him because he knew, he didn't know too much about Hood, but he knew he'd had a brilliant record in those two grades, and he had no reason, since he'd had no immediate contact with him, they'd served in different regiments, uh, he had, uh, he uh, apparently welcomed him with open arms, even though many, many, many officers and men of the Army of Tennessee resented their people being passed over in favor of a man from the Virginia Army, because the, there was no great degree of cordiality between those two armies at the time. They were fighting for the same cause, but then uh, that's true in many walks of life. Um, um, there are a lot of companies in the same line of business who are rivals, and yet they're after the same ends. But um, he did, he, he whipped the corps into shape, and he commanded it through the early part of the campaign very successfully. But where you began to get a little glimpse of the psychological change in Hood is in volume 39, I think, part two of the official records, when you find him writing some clandestine letters behind General Johnson's back to the President, to the Secretary of War, and to General Bragg, who, uh, and this has happened uh, at other times, and may happen again sometimes, having failed completely as an Army commander, had been boosted up to the, to all intents and purposes, to the command of all the armies of the Confederacy, because after all, the only man up till February of 65 who commanded the armies of the Confederacy was Jefferson Davis, which is uh, probably the reason the Confederacy had two strikes against it to begin with. But um, I have uh, said many times, and some people haven't liked it, but I will always say that it's obvious that God never intended the Confederacy to prosper or he wouldn't have put Jefferson Davis in charge of it. But, um, Hood um, whipped these um, three divisions into shape, and uh, all the time when Johnson was being put on the spot by Mr. Davis, and uh, not so much for the Secretary of War, he, had pretty, he was a pretty sensible man, and he knew he didn't know what was the case out there, but Davis, unfortunately, was a man who believed only in battle. Whether the battle could contribute to any overall distant end meant nothing. He only believed in battle, and right to the end, he seemed to cling to this thing that uh, the boys on both sides had gone off to war believing that one of them could lick five of the enemy. Well, after a couple of three battles, the boys quit thinking that. Uh, but not Mr. Davis and not some other people, including Hood. <coughs> Uh, it's all right to sit back and say, well, go ahead and fight them. But then these boys, when Georgia and Alabama farm boys met Illinois and Indiana farm boys, they found there wasn't so much difference, really. They spoke a little different language and had different ideas. But when it came to fighting, they were pretty much the same breed of cat. Uh, 
Uh, Johnson was at Dalton with certain resources which were far less, without going into detail, than those which Grant and later Sherman had, uh, was building up facing him. He was uh, 90 miles from his base at Atlanta. Uh, the only reason he was in Dalton is because that's where Bragg had retreated to after the Battle of Missionary Ridge. It was not a particularly good position. It was in one way, but it left its communications open to a flanking movement by three different routes which were available to the enemy. Uh, and he, his army was not large enough to hold the Dalton area and still detach enough to block any one of these routes, even if he knew which one they were going to use soon enough. Uh, he kept, oh, and, I, and uh, the, 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 the administration, Mr. Davis, kept insisting that he should now start a campaign up into Tennessee. Longstreet, in the meantime, had been detached and sent up into East Tennessee, and he had a grand plan for Bragg and uh, Mr. Davis, had a grand plan for assuming these two armies on the Tennessee River, making a crossing, and going up through central Tennessee to Nashville, capturing Nashville and then sweeping onto the Ohio River. Now the fact that there was no way in God's green world that they could be supplied meant nothing to Mr. Davis or to Bragg because it was no longer Bragg's pigeon. When Bragg was in command and Davis wanted him to cross the river after Chickamauga and do something similar to that, he had many reasons why it couldn't be done. Now, however, Bragg, why, why can't it be done? Certainly, the fact that, the, that, the, that the, all the country between Dalton going, bypassing Chattanooga, going over Walden's Ridge, up through McMinnville, up through there. It's a very barren country. It couldn't support a brigade very long, let alone an army. The fact that he would have to abandon his base at Atlanta, leave his rail line, carry every round of infantry and artillery ammunition with him and no chance to supply himself. The fact that the moment he did that, Union people would be on his rear and he'd be surrounded, those things meant nothing. The administration insisted on it. Johnson very wisely didn't do it because he simply couldn't do it. But behind Johnson's back, Hood was writing to the president, to the secretary of war, to Bragg, deploring the fact that they didn't. And he pointed a he he painted false pictures of the condition of the army and of the condition of the enemy. He made it appear, because that's what Mr. Davis wanted to appear, he made it appear that the only reason Davis didn't abandon his communications, except Hood didn't use that term or, or bring that up, that he didn't move forward and smash the enemy and move to the Ohio River and probably up to Cook County to make a peace. Um, uh, was because he just was was too dilatory, didn't like. Now, Joseph E. Johnson was a different breed of cat. Uh, Pete and I fight about him all the time because uh, Joseph E. Johnson was, first of all things, a sensible businessman. And some of our best army leaders are sensible businessmen because, gentlemen, the command of an army is a big business and you have to deal with an awful lot of factors. You have the personnel problems, you have most of the problems that you have in a big business establishment. Fighting is a thing that has to be done every so often, but all the time you have to supply yourself, you've got so many men that have to be fed every day, you've got so many animals that have to be fed every day, you have to have medical and veterinary establishments to take care of these men and animals, you have to have 
clothing, replacements for weapons, ammunition flowing in. But you see, the boys who believe only in battle never think of those things. Somebody in the rear can take care of that. Well, not Joe Johnson. He was not about to go away and waste men. Sure, he could have come out of this war a great man. He could have been one of the great top leaders if he would just have played up to the newspapers and to Richmond by going out and destroying the Army of Tennessee in two or three useless battles. He would have thought a great man, a great fighter. Gentlemen, fighters destroyed the Confederate States of America. And even though I may get hanged for saying it, one of the people just as guilty as anybody else was Robert E. Lee. Because in 1865, in the spring, when the crucial test came, where was Lee's magnificent army of northern Virginia? It was dead on such useless battlefields as Antietam, Gettysburg, the wilderness, and others. A battle is nothing unless it pays off by winning a campaign or contributing to the winning of it. To get back to Hood, Hood believed in battle. He believed in tackling anybody anyways. But I think the more I read and the more I search out, I believe that he had come out to the Army of Tennessee with a secret agreement. General Johnson and Davis, and I can't go into it tonight, but they were bitterly, um, uh, well, I will say they had become enemies by that time. Of course, not it's a long-standing thing, which we can't go into. But Johnson was not given that command because the president wanted him. He was given that command because of pressures from the people, from the army, and Robert E. Lee had the final hand of what we get from one very obscure source, and she cut her tongue off if she were alive today and found it out, and that's that gossipy bitch, Mary Chestnut. Right. But um, that um, she inadvertently uh, in a pouty way, said General Lee is responsible for this horrible thing, you know. So uh, Lee, who was a sensible man and one of Johnson's closest friends, classmate, lifelong friends, in fact, I think perhaps the last picture taken of Lee, maybe there was another taken, the last I know of, was with General Johnson when he visited him and other people in Savannah on the 7th, well, just for uh, uh, 65, I guess it was, or when did Lee die? 70? 70, yeah, because he visited Savannah just before that. Um, Hood obviously had a deal on with the president, which Bragg knew about, of course, that as soon as Johnson failed, and failure in the president's sense was to yield territory and not give battle where the president thought he should and where General Sherman hoped he would, uh, but to retreat slowly towards the vast fortified base at Atlanta with his army intact, his men's morale high, the thing getting in better gear all the time, the army, uh, from which he uh, couldn't be budged. When the time came, there was no military reason in God's green earth why Atlanta should have fallen. And uh, even though Pete and I fuss about this all the time, though I never know quite when he's pulling my leg, really I think he knows better. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, the only reason in the world, well, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, first, the clandestine letters. Then the next thing is the affair at Cassville. Um, Johnson is scored by many, many writers because he allowed uh, Sherman to send McPherson's people through Snake Creek Gap. 
And of course, Snake Creek Gap is vastly misrepresented. Uh, uh, even uh, Jacob D. Cox, who came through it in command there, he must have come through it asleep in the saddle or in mi at midnight, I don't know which, because he, he, he describes it as a little narrow defile. Actually, it's a very pleasant little valley in which there were two farms until the Democrats made farming impossible. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but there used to be two farms. How's it gone now? But it's, it's wide enough for that. They weren't the biggest farms in the world, but then there were two farms in there. But that's that little narrow defile. Actually, it's about five and a half, five and three quarters mile long, that road. Uh, Johns Mountain on one side, Horn, or, um, uh, Horn Mountain on one side, and the tail end of Chattooga Ridge, or Rocky Face Ridge on the other. That tail end's called Mill Creek Mountain. Uh, it was uh, not a thing that could be defended except by a very large force for the simple reason that Sherman proved that fall, any, any body of infantry can ride over the top and flank people out of it. Johnson did not have the force, but he depended on cavalry stationed several miles out at another ridge to give him warning of this thing. Well. There were indications he didn't get, he got this in the cavalry before they pulled out for some reason. Uh, Hood was sent down there in command of a couple of divisions and came back and said the threat was over. Now why he did that, I don't know, because the threat was not over. There was no reconnaissance made in the Snake Creek Gap to, uh, to uh, really establish that fact. He came back and said there was no threat, that there'd just been a reconnaissance down there and they'd retired. Actually, McPherson's whole corps was in that area by that time. Uh, that is another thing that makes me wonder about Hood a little bit. But there were three days fighting at Versaca, two of actual heavy fighting, and um, first day of skirmishing. Then the army retired to Adairsville, and then um, to go over this very rapidly to Cassville, part of it to Kingston and part of it to Cassville. At Adairsville, where the road forks, the old main road led straight south following the railroad to Kingston. Today, US-41 goes up over what was then just a very, very poor country road. There's no water up on this long ridge called the Gravelly Plateau, or very little. And um, the logical way to go, especially with large bodies of animals, is where there was water and forage, and there was plenty of it along the Kingston Road. Um, Johnson decided that he could puzzle, if not completely delude Sherman, into believing that he had passed his army by Kingston. Actually, he passed one corps and all of his trains except the ammunition wagons and the ambulances of Hood's and Polk's corps. He passed them that way with the instructions to make all the pother they could, make it look like the army had passed. He sent these two corps straight towards Cassville with instructions to, to make the least litter possible, to make it look as just though a flanking force had passed that way. Well, Sherman got up there. It didn't make any sense to him. He felt, why would Johnson go this way and abandon his railroad? Uh, so he uh, took a course which took in everything. He spread his army on a sun of three or four roads leading down through there to meet any contingency. Well, I think that's about what Johnson thought would happen because those two people, being top-class thinking men, both of them, uh, they pretty much understood what each other was doing. 
Uh, I think Johnson, well, I know Johnson expected, it's obvious, he expected this left flank of Sherman's to be not too strong because his army would be widely dispersed because of this uh, situation. He backed up to Cassville, and he there he turned to give battle. He ordered Polk's corps to deploy across the road down which they had drove up, well, down this which they had just come, facing north again. He ordered Hood to move out to the right of the old Spring Place Road and prepare as soon as the first Union element, the extreme left flank of the Union force, got into here, Polk to smack him in front and Hood to come in and crush him utterly. Then they would retire. That in itself would not win a great battle, but it would so damage Sherman's left that it would probably delay him two or three weeks before he could repair the damage, evacuate his wounded, uh, uh, and prepare for the next bound. It would take quite a little while to repair that damage. Hood moved out that morning, but for reasons which he has never explained very lamely, and no one else has ever explained except to uh, point out that he was wrong, he moved out and nothing happened. Now we know that these were Johnson's orders because there was a journal, a headquarters journal account, which recites the events of the morning. Johnson writing out to place the troops and then writing and then wondering and then writing back, wondering why nothing had happened, sending his chief of staff out. Hood told him that he had not attacked because he had just discovered there was a large force of infantry and artillery on a road leading in from the east, which was utterly impossible and, of course, didn't happen. It was merely McCook's cavalry, Union cavalry out there fighting with Wheeler, and they did get in and engage some of Stevenson's division on, on the, of Hood's corps, and they had artillery with them, and there was an artillery and rifle fight out there, a small arms fight. But Hood, Hood of all people, who had never avoided a battle before, uh, took the attitude that he could not afford to get involved in battle with a situation that unclear. The hood of a year earlier would have fought both directions at once and loved it, if there was. What he actually would have done, had he been acting in good faith, he probably would have sent a regiment down the other road to see if there was anything there. But in the meantime, he would either follow his orders or he would immediately send a galloper back to headquarters to say, tell what the situation was. He didn't either. He just sat there and did nothing except go through the motions of facing his people about down this road. That again, that is not hood. And it leads me, though a lot of people become outraged at this, it leads me now to believe that Hood did not want Joseph E. Johnson to succeed in any step of this campaign. See, Johnson's true role was to fall back, fall back, fall back. All of his into heavily entrenched lines, and the line at Cassville was a beauty. I don't care what some of the writers say. And if you've ever seen this Morris map in Hood's book, it makes no sense. It doesn't fit the terrain. Even the town of Cassville isn't precisely where he puts it. And he draws in a series of Union batteries, supposedly interdicting that line, which were not even there and probably wouldn't have been there. Um, because uh, nobody at that time had batteries in position to bring up at that time. And even if they had, even if they had interdicted the line there as Hood and Polk, uh, Hood primarily induced Polk to insist to Johnson, uh, the minute uh, their own, the minute the Union infantry approached the Confederate line, the Union batteries would have to lift their fire. They couldn't fire into their own people. 
So, um, Cassville, again, but I'm getting a little away from myself. When this line was established, when the first thing blew up because of Hood's, I think, deliberate failure to carry out Johnson's plans, and mind you, the Hood of pre-Chickamauga days would never have dreamed of a thing like this. First place, the psychological change hadn't occurred, and in the second place, he liked to fight too well. He wouldn't have dreamed of doing a thing like this. He wouldn't have written a clandestine letter behind anybody's back for any reason. He was a perfectly honorable man. But now he was a tortured, frustrated man grasping at opportunity. Uh, Johnson had fallen back to this line where, again, he wanted to Sherman to attack him with his left, chew him up very badly, and then in the night drop back across the Etowa River to new strong works back in the Alatoona Range. Well, again, Hood disrupted that. He got Polk to believing it. He went to Johnson's headquarters at night, or got him, uh, asked him to come over to General Polk's across the road, and they had this uh, talk, and out of it, uh, Johnson decided that uh, he would pull out of there. Hood insisted that his line was so, so inflated and uh, Polk agreed with him. Polk was a splendid Christian gentleman, but not much of a soldier and a little easily led, a very easygoing individual. But um, I guess he felt, after all, uh, he had a vast responsibility, and if two of his three sub senior subordinates felt that it couldn't be done, that feeling would be transmitted to the men because don't ever tell me that soldiers don't know what in the hell is going on at headquarters because they know it before the people in the headquarters do usually. Uh, amazing lot of people, soldiers. Um, he decided that even though he was losing a great opportunity to pull out, and he did, and all of his life he regretted that thing. Well, without going into detail, uh, that, that sort of thing marked the rest of the campaign as far as the Chattahoochee River. Um, Hood at Kennesaw Mountain, off on the left, delivered a completely unauthorized, didn't even bother to consult Johnson, attacked the Union right, got pretty badly chewed up for no good reason, uh, took great uh, laurels, sent his own dispatches, saying what a wonderful fight he'd had, sent them to Richmond, uh, making it appear that Johnson had been dilatory in the thing. Um, never, all the time, was he ever loyal to General Johnson at this whole campaign. Um, but as I repeat, the hood of pre-Chickamauga days, before he lost that leg and consequently uh, uh, became a different man, um, would never have done such things. This, of course, was what Mr. Davis wanted. Now, Joe Johnson was losing nothing in the world but ground. He was delaying as much as he could. He was costing Sherman all he could cost him. He, um, he um, was saving his own army. And gentlemen, don't ever believe some of the historians and some of the writers that say that soldiers like to be killed. The fact that uh, Johnson was preserving his army, he was feeding them, they were killing Yankees every day. These soldiers were not adverse to that at all. And they thought Joe Johnson was the greatest man that ever lived. And it's reflected in letters, in books, in regimental, not so many regimental accounts, but various reminiscences that have been published to Confederate soldiers. It's published in so many, so many 
is substantiated in so many things, there's no doubt about it. By senior officers, by soldiers, there's no doubt about it. But that was Joe Johnson's army, and they loved it. Well, finally, when he got ready, waited as long as he could, but when Sherman, with his larger force, was able to cross the Chattahoochee River above him, he had to cross the Chattahoochee, but not till after he'd collected his toll of blood and time. Uh, he dropped back to the line of Peachtree Creek, just uh, a little south of it, towards the city, and there he had his engineers stake out an outer line. The fortifications of Atlanta, even though Hood in his book says that he built them on the night of the 21st of July, uh, uh, the fortifications of Atlanta, the one thing that makes a liar of Hood is that in the official records you will find a plate there which is uh, approved by the uh, the engine, the chief engineer of the Confederate um, war, war Office, uh, dated uh, 1863. In fact, all these works are cited in. We've even got the we've even got all the Grant correspondence. We've got the Grant sketches, his his field plan, everything. We know that this stuff was built in 63 in the summer of 64. They were being elaborated by General Johnson before getting back to him. But Hood had nothing in the world to building any works other than as the army fell back to them, they did fill in the infantry parapets, of course, which had to be done by them and put out their various uh, obstacles and so on. The army fell back, and this was precisely what Mr. Davis wanted. He wanted proof of the fact that General Johnson would not fight. Well, General Johnson would fight when there was profit in fighting but he would not fight when there was no profit in it. He would not fight for fighting's sake. No sensible businessman goes down to a bucket shop in the morning and tosses all the, all the firm's finances on some stock that somebody has told him is going to jump up tomorrow. He wouldn't be in business very long. Yet, so many commanders of that war operated just like that without any reason for it particularly, without any concrete goal, without it being part of an overall plan, they would fight battles. And that's what Mr. Davis seemed to like. Mr. Davis had the idea that battle in itself was an end. It was not. A battle is merely a means to an end. And a successful battle can cost you so much that you can never gain the end is precisely what happened in Virginia and is what was due to happen shortly in Georgia. When Joe Johnson's Army of Tennessee fell back across the Chattahoochee River, its losses had been much less than Sherman's. It was in an excellent state of combat efficiency because of the teamwork they developed through the summer, and its morale was at top hold. And don't you let anybody tell you any difference because the soldiers, the company grade people, regimental commanders, general officers, all substantiate that. That army was at top hold. No longer could they be flanked out by a superior force because they had this tremendous fortification just under 12 miles in extent to fall back into. All the world they had to do was hold the railroad to the south to Macon where they were supplied from that arsenal and around by Macon from the Columbus arsenal. They had all the granary of South Georgia there to be supplied from. All they had to do was hold Atlanta till after the November elections when at that time, and this is certainly richly substantiated, that had not a major victory revived the feelings of northern people, uh, Mr. Lincoln would not have been reelected, and the war would have been settled. But Johnson knew these things. Richmond seemed to pay no attention to them. Uh, 
I hate to have to slough over these so fast, but time is time. Finally, Bragg arrived in Atlanta, sent out obviously by Mr. Davis to prepare the axe for Johnson. Actually, he called on Johnson and said he was not there officially. He was on the way to Montgomery on business and there and in the Mississippi Department. Uh, but just stopped in for a friendly visit. Uh, nothing uh, since Johnson asked, uh, since he asked Johnson apparently nothing about what he intended to do. Naturally, Johnson was not volunteering any information because Johnson, uh, people, uh, people uh, uh, find fault with Johnson because he didn't announce all these plans every day. And I think some of you are familiar with, the most of you, with Napoleon's famous quotation that if his pillow knew his secrets, he would burn it which is a doggone good precept for an army commander, especially in a situation like that. But he had very sound plans. However, uh, Bragg talked secretly with Hood. Hood again misinformed him about what had happened. He said they had passed up many splendid opportunities to fight up in the mountains of Georgia. Well, there are some mountains of sorts up in there, but there, I have, there's no place between the Resaca area, the Dalton area, until you get to Atlanta, except for a temporary holding at Kennesaw. And the only reason they held there so long, because the mud was so deep that Sherman could not make a turning movement until things dried up. There was really nothing secure until he got to Atlanta. Any place he would try to stop, he could be flanked out by Sherman's bigger army. Once he got in these big fortifications, though, he was safe. He couldn't be flanked out. Supplies would flow in from the rear. All he had to do was see that Sherman didn't go around him. And gentlemen, had Joe Johnson been left in command and his magnificent army of Tennessee, which has never been given the credit to do it, had been left intact, Sherman would never have dared go around and cut that railroad. Hood, as a result of Bragg's visit, superseded Johnson. Johnson had a plan. He tried all summer, he'd hoped all summer, to find Sherman with his wings widely separated. He never did it. Sherman never gave him the chance because he knew Joe Johnson. Finally, however, when it came to crossing the river, it took uh, it took some doing a little bit, and it, it offered an opportunity, so Sherman did take a calculated risk, which later would be to the disadvantage of the Confederate forces in Atlanta if they tried to stop him. If they didn't, uh, of course, he didn't know, mind you, one thing Sherman did not know how extensive these fortifications were. Uh, later, when he saw his chief engineer made a reconnaissance with glasses and he recommended against any assault against those works and Sherman himself when he looked he termed them unassailable and mind you there was never any attempt to carry the works in Atlanta ever no no Union soldier ever set foot inside of Atlanta until after it was evacuated for other reasons except as a prisoner of war now that is not brought out in many histories but that is true Atlanta never fell for any military reason which would have come into being had General Johnson been left in command. Johnson intended, while Sherman was going to separate his right and his left wing and bring his right wing across straight north of Atlanta, across Peachtree Creek towards the north of town, not realizing these heavy defenses were there, he sent his left wing upriver under McPherson and to approach from the east, partly, to, partly for the reason of destroying much of the Georgia Railroad out there, 
uh, an approach from the east which put Johnson between a sort of pincher movement there. And as I say, at that time, Sherman did not know the town was so heavily fortified. He'd been told of fortifications, but he had no idea the extent of these things and the strength of them, uh, which he felt he could squeeze Johnson out of the place, which couldn't, it wouldn't have worked at all. To counter this, Johnson intended to smack Sherman's right at Peachtree Creek when it approached and was going through the job of crossing the creek. Peachtree Creek today is a formidable obstacle in that sense. If Peachtree Creek today had no bridges except one or two as it had then, or had only, had only two, really, three, uh, and they, only one of those was of any real use to uh, these people approaching from the north. Uh, Men getting across, July, that was no real problem, though the creek is a little deep and the banks are marshy, but that was no problem. But getting artillery, caissons, ambulances, ammunition wagons, that was something else again. Bridges had to be built. While that was being done and the infantry being passed, that was the time when they were in the embarrassment of that movement. Johnson meant to hit right then. And with Johnson's timing and Johnson's flawless planning, Flawless planning. Nobody ever planned. I don't suppose any man until Douglas MacArthur came along ever did such flawless planning or went to such lengths to save his own soldiers' lives to gain the most or the least casualties as Joe Johnson did. Um, however, Hood was uh, relieved. I mean, Johnson was relieved and Hood put it in. Hood tried to execute Johnson's plan, but when the word got out to the troops, and of course they tried to suppress it, but you can't hold anything from soldiers. Uh, the grapevine is an amazing thing. Uh, the morale of the army dropped, and you find that so well substantiated, and I won't go any farther. They didn't like Hood very well to start with. Some of his own core people, they'd begun to like him, uh, but they were curious about him. They still, many people still resented his being put over Pat Cleaver and A.P. Stewart, one or two others. There was no particular point to it. And then a lot of them knew something which you will find in this headquarters journal that uh, while Hood, this only says one lieutenant general, but it had to be Hood, obviously, Hood publicly council fighting privately, he encouraged retreat. Again, because he did not want Joe Johnson to succeed. When Bragg and Hood got together, Bragg painted the false picture, I mean Hood, then Bragg sent a very misleading wire to Mr. Davis, but it was exactly what Davis wanted to hear. So based on that, despite the fact that Lee took a very dim view of it, obviously, Johnson was relieved and Hood was put in command. Why was Hood put in command? Because Hood was a, quote, fighter, unquote. And if anything in the world, the Confederate States of America could not afford at that time was fighters when they were fighting for no particular reason. Johnson fighting a carefully planned, flawlessly conducted fight at Peachtree Creek was one thing with plans made for the next step. Hit, destroy, and get out. Hood, however, did it differently. He tried to follow the plan, but the morale had sunk. And then the day when, on the 20th, when the troops of dead crossed or were crossing, the thing was so badly delayed that the Union forces under Thomas were across and on pretty high ground before the attack was even launched, on strong ground. Further, Hood himself never went near the battlefield. Never again 
Never again, after Chickamauga, to the best of my knowledge, did he ever go to the forefront of the battle. Never, that any place I, I, I can find any trace of. With a result, here were two corps commanders out here in front, Hardy and Stewart. Hardy was the senior, and had Hood delegated the authority, things would have been different. But he neither came to the battlefield himself, neither did he delegate authority. So things were something of a mess, put it mildly, the attack got off late, and what should have been a very damaging blow to Sherman's right became a blow that the Confederacy could not afford. Sherman's casualties, or Thomas's casualties, were uh, 1,779, Hood's were 4,946, I think. Uh, however, my memory is not what it used to be. Uh, then Hood did the foolishest thing of all. Where is Johnson's second step if things indicated it was wise to pull back, leave the defenses lightly garrisoned temporarily by a few of his troops augmented by the Georgia militia, and don't look down on the Georgia militia. A lot of our writers take a dim view of them, and yet they did some magnificent work at places like Honey Hill, Griswoldville. Uh, they, 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 they earned their salt. Uh, don't uh, be misled. The Georgia militia uh, wasn't as bad as painted. But they are nice whipping boys for um, some types of historians, or alleged historians. But, um, but um, where Johnson would have moved out under his plan, he'd have watched McPherson, then moved out with almost all of his army and completely smashed McPherson, the left wing, which would have ended Sherman's campaign, Hood decided to do something differently. He detached. Hardy's Corps, which had fought on the 20th at Peachtree Creek and taken heavy losses, despite some superficial uh, records, the fact that he hadn't, took quite heavy losses there, uh, they moved back to their outer line that they'd constructed for temporary purposes, had a dry bivouac all night the 20th and through the 21st, or fairly dry. There were a few wells in the vicinity and two or three small streams, not enough to supply an Army Corps, their men and animals. At twilight, or at least after dark, of the 21st, Hood's Corps began this tremendous turning movement, about 15-mile march all the way south, which, about noon the next day, put an already tired, already decimated corps in the rear of a fresh federal force, which was far stronger, and uh, Hood, or Hardy, the Corps commander, making this turning movement, was completely cut off from any help. That was Hood's, I think, second big blunder. Uh, he still had this idea, of course, he was in a state of frenzy by this time. His first great opportunity, he had failed. This was his second. Hardy was going around, and he was going to completely smash McPherson's army. Despite McPherson was fresh, his troops were the old army of the Tennessee, which were first-class troops, well-led, uh, as I say, fresh. They hadn't been pushed. They'd been bivouacking every night. They hadn't been fighting everybody for anybody for some days. They'd gotten up to strong positions, and yet Hood's already tired, smaller corps was moved clear away from any support and told to attack their rear, which they did very gallantly, very magnificently. Now in front of the Union force, McPherson's Army of the Tennessee, was Hood's old corps under Ben Cheatham of Tennessee. Had Cheatham 
been launched at McPherson's front. At the same time Hood struck his left and rear, they might have done a great deal more damage. I uh, probably would have done a probably would have damaged the Army of the Tennessee very badly. Nevertheless, there were four fresh divisions right there with an easy call for Sherman, so the thing could not have had any long-range advantage. All in the world Hood had done in two battles was to very badly shoot up his army. Uh, when darkness finally stopped the fighting at the Battle of Atlanta on the 22nd, this turning movement of Hardee's, Sherman's losses were 3,772, Hood's were 8,000, and I can't, uh, 400 and some, as I recall. Uh, again, losses the Confederacy absolutely could not afford, and of course you can imagine what this was doing to the morale of this Confederate army. Nevertheless, Hood pulled them into the fortifications six days later, did it again. Gentlemen, I've gone on to this thing only to show you that here's an army that has been very carefully managed, the soundest business management, nothing invested without an immediate gain, and if there was no long-range gain, no investment. Hood was investing everything uh, just on happenstance. He was just playing the market wild. He wasn't even dealing with the market. He was dealing in bucket shops. Um, so the Confederate Army just went to pieces under that. Hood, of course, to cut it short, fought another battle out south of Atlanta the same way. He had not appeared on the battlefield of Atlanta, so there was no coordinated attack. Six days later at Ezra Church, he detected a he, he detached a smaller force than the Confederate than the Union right wing, which is moving around, and they again got badly shot up. Again, he was not on the battlefield, and again, he did not delegate authority. So here were two, two corps commanders, who in this case, ranked from the same day anyway, that was A.P. Stewart and S.D. Lee, who S.D. Lee had just joined. Uh, and that again was a terrible blow to the Confederacy. And from the 20th to the 28th inclusive, the very fine army which Joe Johnson had built up from the wreckage of Missionary Ridge, the wreckage of Bragg's handling, into a fine, proud, effective fighting force, it had just began to go to pieces. It would fight, but its heart wasn't there. Now we settle down to the siege of Atlanta, and uh, Sherman never attacked the works there at all, just consented himself, or just consented himself with shelling while he made a plan. Now with this army very sadly decimated, and a lot of its men going in desertion, the desertions were, were, were very heavy in that Confederate army uh, uh, after, after Johnson left. As um, one Mississippi soldier is um, reputed to have said, it's in a letter, or a reminiscence, I should say, that they would go to hell for old Joe Johnson, but to hell with John B. Hood. Because Joe Johnson was not going to waste any man's life unless the Confederacy profited by it. Hood didn't think in those terms, he only thought in terms of battle, and he was doing what the president wanted, and so he was very happy. But, of course, by the time this third battle had been fought, he must have been in a state of emotional frenzy, because three stark, drastic failures, shocking failures, and uh, in his first move, it was his ten years in army commander. Well, of course, as you know, Sherman, now that the army was decimated and he was facing John Hood's brain rather than Joe Johnson's, he was safe to make a flank movement clear around the army there and uh, the Confederate Army in Atlanta and cut that supply line which made Atlanta fall. 
I still say, had Joe Johnson been there, he couldn't have done it. Sherman would never have presented his marching flank to Joe Johnson and an intact army of Tennessee. To a decimated army of Tennessee under John Hood, nothing to it. Nothing to it. Finest team in the world against the scrubs of the second-rate coach. Uh, or at least badly battered team of the second-rate coach. Let's put it that way. They weren't scrubs. Hood, of course, as you know, then, after three weeks of recuperation, he moved back to Lovejoy, then up to, the, up to Palmetto, and then he moved up the river, up, up the railroad, to cut Sherman's supplies. Well, of course, that didn't do any good. Sherman was after him immediately, uh, tried to bring him to bay up in the same area where Hood had lain there in Western Merchant Valley, in that same area where he'd recuperated for three weeks, tried to bring him to battle, but Hood was not about to give battle to anybody. He wanted out of there, obviously because he now had this plan which the president had not only approved, but he'd announced to the press that they were going to invade Tennessee. And there's nothing in the world that Sherman wanted more than to get out of there and, and uh, firm up all of his gains in Georgia, which, of course, opened the path to sea. Well, Hood had gotten what he wanted, He'd gotten command of the Army of Tennessee, and he'd destroyed it. He'd gotten command of it by, I think, uh, dishonorable means. I think that if you study the record closely enough and follow the behavior pattern of everybody concerned, I think you will agree that he got it by dishonorable means. But I still think, and say in fairness to Hood, that the old Hood of pre-Chickamauga days, proud of himself as a division commander, who would never think of doing a dishonorable thing, would never have done a thing like that. The loss of his leg, the loss of his standing in Richmond, I mean, as a, as a, as a bow, as a figure of that type, and then the fact that he had to deliver in order to ever have a future, he had to become an army commander and deliver, because I think he had dreams of ending the war in great success with the team of Lee and Hood being the great stars of the Confederacy, or perhaps Hood and Lee. But, um, but um, that dream, of course, was dissipated. As you know, he took his army up into Tennessee to complete disaster and then faded out of the picture. A bitterly unhappy, a, I think, mentally, emotionally disturbed man, uh, an emotional uh, state from which he never completely recovered. Um, Hood's report, which he wrote to this campaign, is a tissue of fabrications. I won't cite the various things in there, but everything is just, uh, it's just a tissue of fabrications. One thing he talks about in the report, and he says in his book that they'd passed, they'd come down out of the mountains of Georgia, where they had all these magnificent defensive positions, into the flat plain around Atlanta. Well, gentlemen, I've known Atlanta pretty well for a good many years, but I have never found any flat plain around there. Atlanta, in case you don't know it, is the second highest large city in the United States. Of course, Denver is three or four times as high. The mean elevation around there is over a thousand feet. Down uh, in front of the Davis and Paxton store on Peach Street downtown is 1087, to give you an idea. If you stand on Peach Street Street there and look east and west, you will see how high up you are. You see, it's the watershed between the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlanta Ocean. Any place you approach Atlanta, you're going uphill. There's no way to reach Atlanta without going uphill. And yet Hood, in his report and in his book, talks about coming out of country like that down into a flat plain which is indefensible. 
Again, he says that no preparations had been made to defend Atlanta because obviously Johnson was moving. Johnson had moved his excess baggage out very wisely, but the town was magnificently fortified and nobody in God's green earth would have sacrificed the people to push the Confederate army out of there. Sherman certainly wouldn't do it, and I still think that had the change of command not been made, had these rash attacks not been made out in the open where Sherman wanted them made on Sherman's army, the city would have held till after the November election, and then of course it had been a different thing. Hood's book, and that's my end on it. Hood's book is cited by historians as authentic. There is very little, unfortunately, in the book that is authentic. I still say that the Hood of earlier days would never have written such a thing. It would be much better for his reputation today had he never written that book, because anyone who takes the trouble to go into it and compare notes and visit the country and read reports and read other people's, other people's uh, 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 works see that the whole thing is, again, like his report, a whole tissue of fabrications. But I think that the John B. Hood, who, after the war, was not very successful in business either, the John B. Hood who wrote that book was a man so emotionally disturbed that he simply wasn't responsible for what he was writing. He was so eager to justify everything he did, he admitted to no mistake, and he now has so muddied the waters of the history of that phase of the Civil War that nothing can ever clear them again. Whether John B. Hood did a worse disservice to the Confederacy or to history, I don't know. But certainly, he did a great deal of harm to both. Thank you. That's a great job, Colonel. Thank you very much. Uh, I first want to ask a thousand questions because I've been a Hood fan for many, many years, but let's see some hands from the audience. Lloyd, are you going to lead off this evening? You're being an old Hood enthusiast. Well, you're, you're crazy as hell. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't want to lead off, but uh, I'll always answer when you call on me. Pardon me, whoever you were up back there. Uh, man, this has been going through, sit down, keep coming. Yeah, all right. It's been going through my mind for years. Um, I don't believe Hood changed too much. As I see this fellow, he was a nobody. And his only way to get ahead, in a military sense, was to fight, which he had an ability to do. Uh, chances are, if all he did was cook whiskey in the hills of Kentucky and shoot revenue. Uh, Hood wasn't anybody, and he knew it, and he got prominence with his ability to fight in a war that gave him the vehicle to do this. I think innately in his soul someplace was this same character. I don't think he changed. I think it was there, and when he got a little taste of high society with Jeff Davis and was carried around like he was as a sort of a hero, this, this gave, fed this ego so the fellow then saw the opportunity to be what innately was way deep within him, and he followed it. Uh, he, uh, Mike, don't you ever say again that I love this man. God. <laughs> <laughs>
managed to knock out 11 kids in 10 years, which is a pretty good job, corps commander or brigade commander, whatever, anything else you want to call them. Um, also, uh, another stirring part about Hood's character, since you're attacking a man's character, I'd like to defend it. We all know about the phony lottery in New Orleans and all the uh, Wheeler and Beauregard and so forth. Hood would never become a part of that crooked deal. You know that. Uh, also, we know that he left. Uh, he went back after uh, his army was defeated. He went back, lived in Kentucky, went back to visit his mother for about two or three months, and he went back to New Orleans. And then he went to get a peculiar thing. He went to Washington, D.C. to visit President Johnson in jail. I don't know whether, did you ever get to see him or not? Uh, President Davis, rather. Johnson, president, president. I got him mixed up. Another year. Um, he didn't get to see Davis. Wrong jail, he says. But he went there, and why would a guy go so far? I think. Uh, the book he wrote, the name of the book, I think we it was called Advance and Retreat, so if you manage to avoid it, you should by all means. But uh, he's an interesting guy. I think uh, two points made here tonight are truly correct. Uh, there were two different hoods. The hoods before Chickamauga and the hood after. I, I think, Roy, you have to admit to that. I don't. And also, the, uh, well, you don't really have to. We'll take a vote on it later. And also, the hood at, who lived in New Orleans afterward. I think he realized, he had some remorse and retribution. I think he did realize that he had made some great errors and he was trying to amend those errors. I, I really do. I, I believe that. Uh, incidentally, our meeting on December 8th is going to have a very special added attraction. I hope we have the biggest turnout that we've ever had in the history of the round table. Uh, December 8th, uh, Gil has left. He's on to work. He had to be at the Tribune at 9 o'clock. It's going to be Gil Twist Night. Uh, we're going to take about 15 minutes in front of the meeting and we're going to honor the guy who gets out our news bulletin. He's articulate, he's intelligent, he's decent, he has great humility. Many people, the only connection they have with our round table is a bulletin that they receive each month. Uh, they live out of the city or out of the state. Our activities are reported there. It, it's marvelous. He does a great job and he wants to quit. And we don't want him. We want to keep him. We don't know how we're going to replace him unless Al Meyer will take the job. But uh, so we're going to honor him. And we have a lot of very nice presents. We're going to have a big special treat. And I hope we have the biggest turnout. And if there are any more questions, I don't. Uh, I suggest we hear it. It's a big long. I just swore I wasn't going to say anything tonight, but is there a psychiatrist in the house? <laughs> Now, there are several things. Uh, they're maligned a little bit, I think. Bruce here on there. Uh, no, no. No, no. Now, you can find that, as you can in case of McClellan or anyone else, you can find soldiers that don't like any general, of course. And you can find that we're against Joe Johnston at the time that he was doing this retreating, of course. But the majority, I agree with you, felt, uh, felt as they did with McClellan. Uh, you can find them on both sides. The majority agreed with the viewpoint that you presented, absolutely. But here's the point. The people of the area didn't. Now, you said wisely that there's more than fighting. Well, there's more than just armies. There's politics, and you implied that too. Now, while you are technically, I agree with you a million percent, technically correct in the retreat and the need for a retreat, nevertheless, 
you can't allow from a political and social and emotional viewpoint all those people to appear to be deserted in North Georgia and in other parts of the area. And you can't go to them at the moment and say, this is just fine strategy being carried out by the army. Just wait and we'll be back and take care of you. You can't do that. Davis had to worry about the country as a whole. And I think this is one of the criticisms, and I feel a valid one, of a very great soldier, Johnston. Uh, the people in the political and emotional situation, they saw this retreating. They saw this pulling out. They couldn't understand the great grand strategy behind it. And it's understandable why they couldn't. <coughs> so I think that there is some modicum of defense of Davis's position that he could not allow any more sections to fall. And the silly idea of going up to the Ohio River, yes, it looks silly now, but you had to inspire the people somehow that the country was going to try, they were going to try to put the country back together. You couldn't keep pulling on back to the Azores. And this is what it looked like to some of the public and the general public. And I think that is a very important political emotional point. Very good. Uh, there's one more question about the character of General Hood that I would like to ask Colonel Julia that comes to my mind. You, you remember the incident with uh, General Nathaniel Evans with the ambulances or after one of the affairs where the uh, ambulances that he captured, he kept for himself instead of bringing them back to headquarters. Uh, now, um, Shelby Foote and uh, Dyer both uh, in books have written and said the one thing about Hood was his great loyalty to the Confederacy, his great loyalty to Ari Lee, his great loyalty to Bragg and to Davis, that he was the most loyal of all the leaders of the Confederacy. Then why in the hell, when Lee came to him and said, for crying out loud, apologize to this guy, we'll restore your command, we'll go in the battle, why the hell didn't he say, okay, General Lee, I apologize to go in and fight? Why didn't he? You remember that incident? Well, he wasn't there. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, lately, I don't remember certain things. Yeah, I mean, to me, here's a guy who's supposed to be so loyal, and, and Lee and all these other things, and Lee asked him on the battlefield to just say to the guy he's sorry that he wasn't man enough. Do you remember that incident? But uh, anything else? Mr. Let me say well, one thing yeah. about, that, about that question. I, uh, I must make my position clear about not knowing in detail about that. You see, I am never been too much interested in these great dramatic sideshows that went on in the East while the work was being done out in the Middle West. <laughs> Yeah, we'll be a friend of Bernie McCarthy. Bruce, where's Lou? Yeah, I'd like to ask a question on behalf of Betsy and the camp followers. <laughs> I'd like to hear a little bit more about his uh, relationship with Buck back in Richmond. I have no idea. Sir, Buck's love life is no concern of mine. <laughs> I uh, envy him. I envy him what he displayed after the war and turning out love him so fast. I wish I still had her. What am I saying? I wish I had ever had it. Huh? Thank you. Uh, one final announcement before we leave. Brooks Davis speaking Friday, London Public Library, 8 p.m. Salt Creek uh, Civil War Roundtable on the seven-day panel. I'm going to have enough critics out there as it is. Yes. Thanks a lot. Uh, uh, Alexson. May I say just one brief thing? Yes. I think it's been just about ten years since Colonel Julian arrived on our scene to give his first talk in the old Pearson, right? I don't know how many times I've listened to him since in various parts of the country, but he never did a finer job than he did tonight. Thank you.